Hello and welcome to this discussion New Mandala co-hosted recently with ANU's Malaysia Institute in Malaysia, the first of hopefully a few to come over Malaysia's 14th general elections due in the next several weeks. I'm Kian Wong, contributing editor at New Mandala for these most consequential elections at a time when the nature of Malaysia in the 21st century is highly contested. The nation's secular heritage under siege amid new types of religious and nativist politics. The speakers in this discussion are, in order, Ibrahim Ben Sufyan of polling company the Medeka Centre, Professor Edmund Terence Gomez of University of Malaya, Fadia Nadwa Fikri of Malaysia Muda and a lawyer, and ANU historian Dr. Amrita Malhi. Good evening, everyone. My name is Ross Tapsell. I am the director of the Australian National University's Malaysia Institute. I'm also a researcher of media in Southeast Asia. It's with great pleasure that I uh, welcome you all here to this event. I won't talk for very long myself, other than just to make uh, a couple of announcements or promotional messages, I suppose, about the uh, Malaysia Institute, and then I'll pass on to our expert panel. The Australian National University has a long history of Asian studies, Southeast Asian studies, and specifically Malay and Malaysian studies, dating back from its original creation in 1946. So it's with great pleasure that we continue that uh, importance of Malaysia, uh, Malaysian studies by continuing to have a Malaysia Institute. Our institute is based at the ANU in Canberra, but we are active in Malaysia, and this is uh, one of our first uh, large events uh, that, we've hosted, that we've hosted here officially in Kuala Lumpur. One of the leading sites of Southeast Asian commentary and analysis and criticism and research is the ANU's research website, or website uh, New Mandala, which uh, you can all follow because we'll be current, currently and in the lead up to the elections, we'll be asking for pieces from key scholars and analysts and commentators and researchers to be continually writing about the general election or the 14th general election. I'm very pleased to announce that our GE14 editor will be Ken Wong, who has a long, long history and great experience in the media. And I will now pass over tonight's uh, event to him. But uh, may I again thank you all for coming and please keep in touch via the ANU Malaysia Institute website, which is newly created. You can sign up uh, to the website's page and uh, website's mailing list rather and you can uh, hear about our upcoming events. You can also follow New Mandala on Twitter and New Mandala Malaysia G14 on Twitter as well. As I finish my introductory bapak bapak type remarks, let me thank, the, um, thank all of the panelists for your time tonight. Very much appreciated that you could come and speak to us. Thank you again. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Ross, for that. And welcome, Ben, Ibrahim Zufian, Fadia, Terence, and Amrita. I guess you will see all their brief bios, and you probably know them anyway online. We're going to try and make it as efficient as we can in the age of inefficient elections anyway, where everyone hopefully will speak for about 10 minutes or less, even better. And hopefully then we can have a bit of a discussion 
about the type of politics that we hope may emerge or we can try and uh, figure out. And we'd like to try and get past what is usually the problem with elections, whether here or in America or in Australia that we've experienced, where so much of it is based on some electoral horse race. I think it's more productive for us anyway today to try and get beyond that and figure out where Malaysian society has been, especially for some of us who have experienced reformacy from the beginning and wondering where 20 years went, as some of you probably wonder too. And to begin with, I think it'd be great to hear from Ben over what may be some contentious recent data on where the politics lies. Thanks, Ken. And thanks uh, to Ross and the team from ANU uh, for hosting this, for organizing this, and as well as Grat Budaya. Um, I think this afternoon, basically, I, I'm just going to share some, you know, like, we are the survey guys, so we have to show survey slides. And <laughs> so that's the expectation. So we will do some of that, but I think there are some important questions for, uh, I think, uh, Malaysians and people who are interested in politics in Malaysia to to ask themselves, you know, where have we become, where, where have we, where, where are we now as a society and uh, what kind of choices uh, will people make uh, when they come to elections in a few months' time. So I think when people make political choices here, they are making choices not just on the tangibles, meaning economic performance, service delivery, conduct of government and so on, but they also make it on other latent choices, things that sometimes they don't freely express. And, and this has something to do about the political arrangement of our country, that we are made up of uh, citizens of different faiths, different regional interests, different uh, ethnic interests, uh, which is all represented in the uh, parliamentary districts that make up our country's parliament. So when we look at the 222 seats that are up for grabs in this coming election, these are not just seats in West and East Malaysia, but these are Malay seats, these are mixed ethnic seats, these are Kadazan seats, these are Bidayo seats, these are Sabah seats, Sarawak seats, and at the end of the day, uh, all of this interest will go through this clearinghouse and, and people will make a choice. Politicians will argue whether the choices are made on valid information or on misinformation, but I think we have a great deal of historical data backing us up in trying to understand how people have made their choices in the past. And I think uh, how the future will unfold come GE14 is going to be largely governed by previous uh, voting patterns, uh, as well as I think new emerging trends that uh, we see unfolding in the, in the public space. So at Merdeka Center, what we've done over the last couple of years has been to try and understand when people make choices, what are the factors that drive those choices? So can we uh, just go to slide uh, the first? Um, yeah, so this is what I said earlier. So it's not just the tangibles, but also the intangibles. And, and we can move to the next slide. That this doesn't show up very well on this uh, PC. But what I want you to focus on is that the two, two things that are going on there. Number one is that the blue bars represent Malay, Chinese, and Indian voters in West Malaysia. This is a survey that was done a year ago. So we are about to embark right after Chinese New Year, the second survey that, well, that us again, that repeats the survey again. So we wanted to see how things will unfold after a year's time. But what this slide basically shows is when people make choices, uh, what is it driven by? What we've noticed is that Malay voters place as much weight on service delivery as they do on 
ethnic issues, basically the rights of the Malays. And within the rights of Malays is the position of Islam, the political hegemony of the Malay population in determining the political and economic direction of the country and how well the economic wealth of the nation is distributed back to them. Uh, and if you look at, and that is the factor to the left. So you can see the blue bar is nearly twice as high compared to the red and yellow bars. It just basically shows that Malay voters are twice more likely to place more emphasis on the communal, on the ethnic interests when making the choices as compared to Malaysians of other communities. Whereas other communities place more weight on economic performance and also service delivery. Whereas on service delivery, uh, Malay voters place high emphasis but not nearly as high as Malaysians of other communities. It just shows that even though that the current election is marked by voter concerns over cost of living, over concerns about the situation of good governance, latent interests such as how well the uh, Malay political position is in politics remain first and foremost uh, critical in the eyes of voters. That's the first point I wanted to make. Second point is uh, the next slide. So what we did was, oh, it really doesn't show up very well, so I should have had it as a PDF. Um, okay, what we did then, uh, let's just move on to the next one. Right. Um, so what we did one was, we asked voters how well they trusted political parties between BN, which is marked by the blue bar, PH, which is marked by the red bar, and PASS by the green bar. How well do they trust these parties in managing the, let's say, economy of the country, reducing the problem of corruption, and protecting the political interests of Malays, and treating all uh, races fairly? And what we've done here is that we've split the distribution between Malay respondents and non-Malay respondents. And what we've found was that Malay respondents trust PAS and AMNO more compared to Pakatan Harapan. I think it's the main takeaway point. Because I think there's a lot of uh, rhetoric that's going on in politics today about how Pakatan Harapan is going to tap into an emerging Malay tsunami. But this is, I think, how people are, are choosing that they trust the two principal Malay parties more, even on matters that touch on the tangibles. They trust those guys more. Non-Malay voters trust the opposition parties more. So we can see by the orange shading at the back, you know, if we look at managing the uh, economy of the country to the left, you can barely see the orange shade behind the, the red one. That's basically non-Malay voters who say they trust. So non-Malay voters tend to place higher trust on opposition uh, than it is on the ruling parties or the Islamic party. So uh, I think this is uh, the, the, first, the second point that I wanted to make, that aside from the issues that are impacting voters, we think that trust in the political party in addressing these latent concerns are important as well. And I think I go to my third and final point, which is how well will this unfold come election day? Because a lot of people are doing a lot of polls. You know, we are just one of many groups out there that are doing surveys. Uh, but I think what we want to, I think, share in this evening is that you may have large numbers of people supporting a political party, but how it translates into results is governed by two things. Number one, 
And I think the most important is, um, how is the electoral district designed? How is the distribution pattern of the electoral district? We, we don't have to go you know, ex uh, extensively into this. That we do know that there is a severe malapportionment in terms of how the electoral districts are, are designed. And also we have uh, the ethnic voting pattern embedded in the uh, composition of voters in this district. So even though you have high numbers of voters supporting a particular political party, they might all be concentrated in a constituency like the one we are in right now whereas you have smaller numbers of voters spread out in large numbers. So the point that I wanted to say is that that is one aspect. But the second aspect is the first point, the first couple of points I wanted to make, that voters have different levels of trust to political parties. And that uh, I think the point that I wanted to say is if the opposition is not able to uh, gain sufficient levels of Malay support, then uh, they, won't, they won't pull through and that this election may end up with a very favourable result for Barisan National. I think I will leave that for further detailed exposition in the Q&A. Right, thanks. This might work. Thanks, Ben. Oh, that was very, that was very efficient. That was nine minutes. Um, to speak next about this, uh, I think we'll try and um, go through with all the speakers and then hopefully um, we can have a discussion. Uh, after this, um, would you like to talk about some aspects of the economy, Terence? Uh, thank you, Ken, for inviting me for this program. I'm not too well, so I'll be a bit hesitant in my speech. I want to stress that my focus today really is on policies. I'm rather concerned about public policies and the nature of public policy debates going into an election. This is unprecedented, what we are seeing today. Normally when you get into an election, when you have two major coalitions, they will have major public policy debates. Where are the public policy debates? Now let me take you back through history to show you the importance of public policy debates because it has a bearing on what uh, you just heard too public policies do matter when it comes to the electorate. Can we have the next slide, please? I'd like to go back to 1969. In 69, when we had the debacle of the riots, AMNO responded. AMNO responded in the way in which they did two things. Institutional reform, they formed the Barisan National, which was supposed to be a more inclusive coalition, bringing in all the parties together to help rebuild the nation, to correct the problems of the economies, of the economy which was not corrected after, the, uh, after independence, 12 years, and we saw so little change in the post-colonial economy. The second thing which they did, which was very good, was the introduction of the new economic policy. The new economic policy took the country in a new direction. It called for state intervention. It was a new model of development, a fundamentally new model of development. The focus was on the poor. The focus was on education. The focus was on lifting the poor people, making them a middle class through high quality education, and the policy worked. The reward for the 1970 change was a phenomenal victory for the Barisan National in 1974. The next big election was 1982. Between 1974 and 1982, we had the interim prime minister, Hussein On, who wasn't really a very, what shall I say, dynamic prime minister. Mahathir comes in 
And Mahate talks about a revolutionary change. Basse, Chakap, Amana, clean, efficient, trustworthy government. Heavy industrialization, a new direction for the economy. And soon after the election, it was a phenomenal victory for Mahate. It captured the imagination of the people. People were inspired in 1982. I still remember that election. In 1986, having failed to del deliver to many of his promises and going into the 1986 election, we expected a phenomenal loss. It didn't happen because there was one party, PASS, which was expecting a major victory and in the height of its arrogance said, and this was the time of disco dancing and you know, no more disco dancing. And we're going to do all these things which shocked many people. And pass, who we expected to win big, won one or two seats. Mahate swept through that election. And then, of course, we had 1990. In 1987, we had the debacle, another AMNO debacle. We had the AMNO breakaway. We had Samangat Ampat Mpat And in 1990, that was a disastrous election for Mahate. Soon after that election, Mahate announced Vision 2020. Mahate liberalized the economy. Mahate liberalized education. Now you could have private education, private universities. He liberalized culture. The lion dance was permitted. And in 1995, Mahate recorded, or should I say, Barisan National recorded its best ever electoral victory in terms of popular vote, 65% of the popular vote, unprecedented till today. The response of a nation to Mahate's public policies. Vision 2020 and the liberalization policies had captured the imagination. And then, of course, we had the debacle again of 1999, Reformasi. And Mahate knew the time had come for him to go. And in 2004, we have Abdullah. And I'm sure you all are old enough to remember Abdullah. And Abdullah's vision of Islam Madhari, his idea of eradicating poverty, especially in rural areas, Amnos Heartland, public policies in agriculture to remove, to eradicate poverty once and for all, reign in corruption. A sense of change was in the air. And in that election, the Barisan National swept to one of its finest victory ever in terms of capturing more than 90% of the popular, 90% of the seats in parliament and 64% of the popular vote. Public policies matter. In 2008, when Abdullah didn't deliver, in 2009, when Najib took over, Najib, when he came into power, Najib being Najib, an unpopular politician, according to Madeka's poll, what was it, 30% when he came in? Incoming prime minister, 30% popular vote, popular poll. That is very low, un unprecedented, very low for an incoming prime minister. And then he announced, one Malaysia, uh, the government transformation program, the economic transformation program, a new economic model, which we all knew we needed. After all, this was the post-global financial crisis period. And within a year of announcing these public policy reforms, his popularity poll shot up from 30 percentage points to 70 percentage points within a year. Here they were thinking, wow, public policy response, dynamic prime minister, he should have called for an election then. He probably would have won big, but he waited. 
and he waited. And he waited. And after four years, we saw the consequences of his public policies. It didn't have much impact. In the election in 2013, he said, vote for my public policies, endorse my policies. And his policies were not endorsed. He lost the popular vote. The electorate had made a statement. They did not see any fundamental change between 2009 and 2013 in terms of their livelihood, the betterment of their livelihood, the impact of public policies. What it meant was there was a need for change. There was a need for debate for public policies. Have we seen those public policies? Having said that of the Barisan National, let's talk now of the Pakatan Harapan. Can we have the next slide, please? Here, well, here we are. The point is policies do matter. Pakatan Harapan. In 2013, when Pakatan Rakyat gave us their manifesto, we looked at the manifesto and we asked ourselves, uh, what's the difference? There's no difference here between the two manifestos. Are they two exactly the same in terms of public policies? Let me go back even further. In 2009, 2010, when Najib came out with his new economic model, and there was nothing new there, which we all now know, and it's been confirmed, the opposition leader, Anwar Ibrahim, ran out of the chamber, called for a press conference and said, Najib stole all my ideas. Yes, it's in the news. Najib's. These were Anwar's words. Najib stole all my ideas. What he meant was, when we looked at the new economic model, the new economic model really didn't have anything fundamentally new from what Mahathir and Anwar had put in place in the 1990s. A mix of state intervention, neoliberal privatization type policies, and thrown into the box, affirmative action. If you look at the new economic model, it's still the same thing. So what we are having today, and this is the point I would like to make, the point I'm trying to make is that if you look at public policies today, on both sides, there's no change. There's no difference. But here's the crunch. We do need a new model of development. Can we go to the next slide? I just want to end on this point. I've just made the point there's no difference between the two institutions, Pakatan Harapan and Pakatan Rakyat. But having said that, let me be clear. There are fundamental differences between the two men. Now here, Mahathir, if you look at Mahathir's history, and I'm not going to go through all this, if you look at Mahathir's history, Mahathir's history was a politics of patronage, which the idea of patronage was to create a dynamic ensemble of Bhumiputra businessmen. It didn't work, but his defining legacy, the term was patronage. When we look at Najib, the defining term, when we talk about his administration, it's not about patronage, it's there but the defining term is kleptocracy. A leader who plunders from the state. That is the universe, that's now what we are hearing even in the Guardian and, and in, the, uh, in the United States, that's what they are calling the country. The fact of the matter is when we look at Mahathir's form of development, it is a developmental sort of state. There's a programmatic, there's a public policy agenda. You can understand it. Heavy industrialization, privatization, you can understand these public policies. You may not agree with it, but you understand where it's coming from. When we look at Najib, we don't see those kinds of programmatic, developmental type public policies. That is problematic. 
The concern I'm having, and we can go to the next slide, please. This is my last slide, my conclusion. The concern I'm having here now is, look, in a, in a monumental debate such, of, such as the one that we're going to have, what we should be asking our politicians, both coalitions, is show us your public policy. Tell us what is your big idea. I'm not talking about small uh, uh, public policies on this aspect of taxation. On, I'm talking about the big picture, the new economic model, if you like, the new economic policy, the vision 2020, something major which shows us where you're going to take us. My concern with the opposition is it is a true consociational type coalition. What that means is Barisan National is also a consociational type coalition. That means it's a coalition of many parties, but AMNO is the hegemonic party. AMNO dictates. That is not the case in the Pakatan Harapan. In the Pakatan Harapan, it's a consociational type coalition, but you can see, you have seen it, huge debates. Coming and finding consensus is difficult, but that is the norm. But the point is, as difficult as that may be, you still have to come up with a proper public policy framework. You have to tell us where you're taking the nation. That gives us a real choice. Whatever we may say about Najib, he at least has his, what is it, 2050, or 2050, I'm not taking all these things seriously because I don't see anything really fundamentally new in terms of where he's taking us. So for today's debate, I hope to precipitate some discussion about public policy. After all, elections is about public policies for the future. Thank you. Thanks, Terence. Um, on that basis, I was wondering whether Fadia should, uh, Fadia should tell us a bit about really whether there are any real choices out there and whether that's the sort of thing that informs the disgruntlement of Undi Rosa and so on. Actually, we should also congratulate Fadia. She's just uh, graduated from her Oxford graduate degree and she's back amongst us. Thanks, uh, thank Fadia. you so much, Ken. Thank you so much, everyone, for having me today. Um, I think it's a given that we need change. But the problem is we only have illusion of change. And I think as a voter, a lot of us, uh, particularly the youth, uh, the young people, they feel like they are being forced to choose uh, between the lesser evils. I mean, lesser evilism is still the premise that is being propagated. That if you don't do this, if you don't choose Pakatan, you are responsible for Parisan National and AMNO being in power again after the next elections. So I think, what is the problem that we have? When we talk about change, when we talk about elections particularly, I think something is wrong with our political narrative. I think the dominant political narrative. Because when we talk about politics, I think it's automatic that we only have electoral politics as our choice or as a platform for, ch uh, for, for change. Um, the discussion is very detached from the notion of change and its broad concept. So this whole campaign on Undirosa, there are a lot of talks about uh, the youth feeling disillusioned, they are frustrated because their voices are not heard. I would like to know why are they feeling the way they feel. But the problem is in this country, the moment we try to be critical, 
of political actors. The moment we try to be political of the political elite, we are often talked down. Uh, you have no idea what you're talking about. And if you see articles, for example, on um, social media, people are sharing the articles. It's very condescending the way they talk to people who disagree. I think this is the problem with our political culture. And the problem with electoral politics, I think, is the fact that we only talk about numbers. Every five years, as elections loom, we talk about numbers, we talk about votes, we talk about certain constituents being more important than the other, and also how we often dismiss marginalized voices, for example, the youth, because we don't want them to disrupt, because we feel like if we don't win this election, that means the opposition. If you don't support the opposition, that means we are doomed. Okay, what's wrong with this kind of narrative? I think it's very problematic because it somehow reduces your human dignity, it reduces your rights to just the act of voting. I'm not saying that voting is not important, but I'm saying that it can only be important if people can influence how political actors behave themselves. But the problem is now, they're not offering anything to the people. They're not offering an alternative. And when people question them, they just say that we are better than Amnu, we are better than BN. You have to get rid of Najib. What, what about racism, for example? What about inequality? I think Prof. Terence has said, there's no real alternative given right now for us to consider whether we want to use our right or our power to vote to change through electoral process. And I think it is also problematic when you say, when you hear people say, you know, if you don't vote, you don't have any right to voice your opinions. So I think this is really problematic because when we talk about the principles of equality, non-discrimination, everyone should be able to participate in democratic and political process. It does not matter whether you are citizens, whether you are non-citizens, whether you are voters, or whether you're not voters. I mean, this is the problem when we allow this kind of narrative to go on unchecked, because this is how society feels that it's okay to marginalize certain voices, and it will hamper the effort to raise critical consciousness among Malaysian society. So it has to stop, yeah? And then I think, Maybe I can cite a few examples that I find very troubling. Uh, for example, the fear and anxiety of the Malay Muslims have, despite being the majority in this country. I think we can see clearly, um, based on the recent case of Indira Gandhi, my question is that, can electoral politics resolve this kind of issues, the problems we have amongst us uh, when it involves religion, when we know that religion is institutionalized, how religion is, you know, this fear that is being manufactured by the state and also the myth that continues to be propagated. For example, Dr. Mahadir keeps repeating this myth about the, uh, the lazy Malays. So it makes me think, why do we need to still talk about this? Why do we need to still be stuck in this kind of discourse? Of course, it serves a purpose, right? Um, for example, this myth of the lazy Malays, it's deeply rooted in colonial project that sought to divide and rule. 
And this policy was never dismantled. It was continued after we gained independence. And it is, it, it, this is the structure that we have currently. And we somehow unconsciously are also participating in it, in how we respond to issues that have something to do with religion, with race, for example, with class, yeah? And I think part of the problem with the current narrative is also the fact that we are often, we are often shamed or demonized the moment we talk about ideals, the moment we talk about principles. Electoral politics somehow, I feel like it only revolves around pragmatism. When you talk about ideals, when you talk about principles, people say that, oh, come on, you have to be pragmatic. What does it mean to be pragmatic? No, it cannot be rooted in nothing. It should be rooted in principles. It should be rooted in idealism. So it got me thinking, if idealism is not important, if principles are not important, then why do we study literature, for example? I mean, if we don't want to give that space for people to think, to reflect, to address the problems, to grasp the problems at its, its root, then what's the point of talking about democracy? Democracy is for whom? So I think these are the questions that we hardly ask ourselves because everything revolves around you have to vote because you don't want BN Amnu to be in power. But you are never allowed to be critical of the opposition, for example. You're never allowed to question what kind of policies are you going to present. You are never allowed to even criticize them when they do something that you cannot accept. So I think this is, this is the problem with the current dominant narrative and it has to change. And also this notion of lesser evil evilism, I think it's very, very problematic because it somehow kills our imagination. Because as our country progresses, there are new ideas, there are new changes. Things are changing very fast. And if we don't reflect the changing times, I think we're gonna be stuck in that very moment that we don't have um, the answer to. I think the questions you know, that, that we need to ask, I mean, we, we can't even ask the right questions if uh, we, we don't be critical of the government, we are not critical of the opposition, we are not critical of what society thinks, what change is supposed to be. So I think to be able to have that imagination is very, very important because if we fail to have the space to imagine that we are capable of new possibilities, we are capable of new alternatives, we are reaffirming the fact that evil is kind of boring, it's banal, it's something that some people would argue necessary. So I think this is very dangerous if it continues unchecked. So I think the problem with all these dominant narratives, I think the notion of change has become so narrow that it limits our imagination to explore new things, how to answer all these difficult questions that we have as a nation, you know, as Malaysian society. And also the agenda for change is so distant from the masses. When we talk about change, change, when we talk about elections, sometimes where are the people in this whole process? Where are their voices? Who are doing the work to empower them so that they can be collectively strong to influence the direction of politics?
so that they won't be held to ransom whenever they question certain things. There is no such movement for the time being. I think that is the unfortunate thing, I would say. Yeah? And then, we, I think we're quite used to holding on to this notion of people power, yet. Whenever we protested in the past, people would chant kuasa rakyat, kuasa keramat, people power. But I think it has lost its meaning today because we are so dependent on the political elite to change for us and we can't even demand that they act in our interest because the moment you say that, they'll be like, oh, you are so ungrateful, you know, we're doing this for you. You know, we don't even want to hear your, your concerns because we have a bigger enemy to, to, to challenge and fight. So I think it's something that we have to think about. You know, how do we revive the meaning of people power? How do we change things without depending on one platform for change? And this is one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves. And also I think understanding all these issues, understanding how the dominant narratives continue to be perpetuated is important as it will inform the direction of the country. Where are we heading as Malaysian society? What kind of change do we want to make? What kind of society do we want to have? A society, I think for me, my, I want to see a society that cares about human beings. I want a society that cares about idealism I want a society that cares about principles because without principles, then there's nothing to hold on to. And that is when evil becomes a norm and we feel that it's gonna be the only answer to our questions. And I think given the political stalemate, and we, we were there and we are still here talking about the same issues, about change, about change. We know that the system is built against us. We know that the system is built not to accommodate our being because we are, all, we are also talking about power. Power imbalance is so real because of the hierarchy between the political elite and the people. How do we change that? I think history has shown how people have always confronted, challenged, and also dismantled power that oppresses. So I think the question for us Malaysians now is how do we do that collectively without depending too much on the political elite? They can be there, they will be there. Electoral politics is not gonna go away, but how do we strengthen people power so that we can demand and we can influence how they behave the kind of country that we want, and the kind of change that we aspire to achieve. I think, yeah, I think I've, I've, I've uh, addressed the problems that we have as regards the political narratives, the current dominant political narratives, and there's a need to change it because if we don't talk about these issues now, we will never talk about it. And also I think it's important because people keep saying, if Barisa National or AMNO wins the next election, we are doomed. I think that is a very, very dangerous position to take because it somehow incapacitates our ability 
to continue in the struggle. No one, is gonna no one in the right mind would say that the struggle is a one-time event. It's constant. But we have to start talking about what are we going to do about it now. Thank you. Thanks, Fadia. It, it's very useful to uh, you to reclaim this narrative thing, which, of course, some of us feel very uh, awkward about trying to disabuse you of that. It reminds me of um, my overly optimistic assessment immediately after GE 13, writing about a new narrative and where that has gone. Um, as it turns out, it was exactly the sort of uh, narrative uh, storytelling we were trying to figure out on radio on BFM yesterday that Amrita and I were talking about. And in fact, uh, Amrita, who is a historian, will hopefully give us the long view of where it goes. Let's see if I can do that. Now, I feel like I've got a few things to say that actually intersect with the other speakers. So thank you, Fadia, for leading with the idea of narrative, because that's exactly where I want to concentrate. And it's exactly where I think this coming election is actually pretty hot. Um, so we've heard about the polls, you know, not really very inspiring in terms of there being a knife-edge contest or anything like that. Uh, we've heard about the narratives not really being about change anymore. And no, I don't think they are currently uh, focusing on change. I think they've got a different focus, and I think that's quite... Uh, interesting, and that's where I want to go. Uh, and we've also heard now about the lack of public policy debate. That's not exactly where um, the hot action is in, in this election. But actually, I think where it is, uh, is actually in the question of narrative, in the question of what sort of nation uh, Malaysians are uh, hearing that they live in, what sort of nation they're hearing they're going to live in, uh, and what sort of nation they're hearing the opposition pitch themselves as wanting to build. Um, and so I'm going to start with a quote. Uh, and the quote is from an interview with uh, former Prime Minister Nabrasatu leader Mathir in 2016. Shall I wait for the announcement to finish or just go? Okay. Now, in, this, uh, in, in what he said to me in this interview that I did with him, he said to me, he, meaning Najib Razak, has tons of money. We, meaning the opposition parties, are figuring out how to counter him, of course, but obviously we can't outspend him. So what he was trying to tell me at the time is that this is not going to be a big money counter, uh, counter narrative. It's not going to be a big money uh, campaign on the opposition side. I don't know if I should believe that. I think they have access to money, but that's another story. But anyway, the way he was framing it was certainly, you know, lots of money versus we need to think of something else. Now let me jump forward to 2018 to another quote um, from a PKR strategy person who I won't name. He said to me, we can't fight him with money, so we must fight with narrative. And so here we are again in this question of narrative. And what I want to sort of talk about today, I guess, is a very rough, very work in progress type of analysis uh, about how the opposition parties have, I think, recognized, or they, they from time to time they recognize, and at election time they seem to recognize, um, that election campaigns offer unique opportunities to narrate the story of the nation to itself. Um, and I think that they have developed actually their practice of narration and they've developed their narrative as well uh, since 2008 to place Pakatan Harapan in a unique position in this election, which is actually with the capacity to argue that it carries the legacy of Barisan National in its heyday, unlike Barisan National itself. Now, you know, you hear here and there, um, uh, I guess, uh, references to fake nostalgia. And I, I note that uh, government minister Kairi Jamaluddin has told Malaysians, please don't fall for the fake nostalgia. But I just want to go to 2008 now, and I'm just going to go through this very quickly because it's too rough and ready. It's impossible to you know, do it really properly. 2008, the first time Barisan lost its two-third majority because of an opposition surge. We can see very clearly the beginnings of Pakatan's work, or whatever it was called at the time, Barisan Alternative or whatever it was, um, 
its work at developing a multiracial narrative. And so we saw things that we'd seen uh, before here and there, since 1998 actually, um, including a concerted push to perform interracial politics, not just to talk about being interracial, because actually I think they've been quite um, unwilling to talk about a new racial compact openly with the public, and I think that they have had all kinds of strategic and tactical reasons for not doing so. So what they've opted to do instead is, is demonstrate it, is perform it. Um, and so we saw um, you know, a concerted push then to switch between languages at rallies and charamas, um, to make special efforts to communicate with Indian voters, especially at the time because of Hindraf, uh, and to demonstrate you know, that they were multiracial and that they could work multiracially. So there was a lot of code switching. There's this long build-up of this code switching that Anwar Ibrahim in particular um, represented. So he would switch between religious and secular discourses. He would switch between languages, as I've already mentioned. Yet the underlying basis for solidarity was implied. It was not explicitly discussed. Um, but it was around things like grocery prices, um, public transport, tolls, that sort of thing because it was about connecting up with people, you know, co connecting up with the multiracial polity um, to actually bring something to all of them that they could uh, rally around together. Um, and of course, the other thing that they started to do was talk about the conduct of the election itself. So, so the conduct of the election and the election itself became an election issue. Um, and this was a, a sort of a cross-racial issues that uh, the opposition started to build up. In 2013, this method was developed further. It was layered a bit more, it became a bit more, it, be it became a bit more sophisticated. So, you know, Anwar, for example, was uh, investing even more in code switching, uh, and he was even explicitly going around quoting on the one hand from de Tocqueville to talk about democracy, and from the other hand, uh, on the other hand, circulating leaflets carrying the sanction of Egyptian scholars like Al-Qardawi um, for Anwar's leadership of the nation, effectively implying that, you know, if he were involved in the electoral contest, is Al-Qardawi, that is the sheikh, um, if, if he were here, the sheikh would vote for Anwar. Now, this sort of messaging, again, was a push to ensure that the opposition vote could not be claimed to be purely non-Malay, could not be claimed to be purely non-Muslim, although, of course, the media did claim exactly that after the fact. Um, and the aim was, I guess, to free up Malay Muslim voters um, to feel confident to be able to vote for him without having to worry about being cast as un-Islamic. Uh, and meanwhile, we saw Nurul Iza with the highly emblematic campaign video, which was uh, called You and I, Together We Can Build a Better Malaysia. I don't know if you remember it, but I can quote from it. We grew up happy and hopeful, you and I, at ease with who we are and our place in the nation. We grew up together, you and I. So again, this was an explicit pitch to English-speaking audiences that Pakatan was offering a multiracial vision of the nation, and it was also beginning, I think, to explicitly wind up the nostalgia levels um, for a so-called simpler time that we may or may not remember. It was in the past, maybe it was sometime in the 80s. I don't know when it really was, but it was sometime in the past. Um, and it was easier. We used to go to each other's houses. We used to know each other, you know, this, this you and I thing. And it started to really wind up. And there was at around this time, or actually recently before that, um, a, a surge in interest in, in that simpler time. So there were outlets on the internet like the Nut Graph, uh, which carried a series of explorations of these previous times. And looking at the photographs, it looks like those times were in the 80s. Um, and there was also, I think, a rise around the Lumbapanta area, like around Bangsa, around PJ, in a a kind of a, a remembering, a remembering of earlier times in which people had tried to build multiracial uh, opposition fronts or united fronts. And so there was this surge of interest in the 1940s, in the emergency, uh, and also coincided with the anniversary, etc. Now, I just want to add a proviso that for all the multiracialism of this time, it's not like Pakatan did not deploy a foreign threat to mobilize voters to come out and vote. 
In reality, I think they benefited greatly from reports close to election day that 40,000 Bangladeshis were coming to the peninsula. They were being flown here from Sarawak, if you recall, um, to vote as phantom voters. And there were images circulating on Facebook all that day, uh, on election day, that implied that these phantoms would come and vote on your behalf if you didn't come and vote, so come and vote. Um, and these phantoms were always sort of portrayed sort of like Bangladeshis, sometimes like Indonesians, but usually like Bangladeshis. Now, this time, I'd argue that, again, there's an even greater level of nostalgia and an even more explicit uh, ramping up of the nostalgia level in producing a new narrative of where the nation is going to go. Um, and this time, it's moved forward, I guess, to keep up with a younger electorate or, you know, people are getting older or whatever. So they, they've moved the, the glory days forward to the 1990s, I think. Um, and it's exactly the time before the economic crisis. And I've heard this put to me very explicitly um, by opposition sort of strategy people. Um, to talk about 1993 to 1996 in particular, the glory days of the Mahathir Anwar team, um, before the struggles from 1997 and the financial crisis in 98 began, and before this polity began really fracturing and going in every different direction from 2008. Now this I hear being referred to in PKR circles, for example, is as a superb time. Malaysia at its peak. Now as the campaign heats up, I think the line is going to be, and I'm going to watch and see if this is what it's going to be, Basically, let's go back to this period in terms of the good times, the easy inter-ethnic interaction. Notice the easy inter-ethnic interaction is moving forward by a decade each time. Doesn't matter. Sometime in the past it was easier, and so that's the main point. But, of course, with the proviso as well, that there has to be institutional reform to ensure that the original dream team can finish only their good work and not their bad work. So we have to protect the nation from the bad work that they did, um, but we need to allow them to get back together to finish their project, which was delivering us all into interracial happiness and prosperity. Now, not only have I heard it put this way, I've also heard actually a comparison that the only other time in Malaysian history that times were as good as 1993 to 1996 was the Malacca time. The Malacca period before 1511. I'm not kidding, this is really, it's a serious point. When we, i.e. Malaysians, attracted Chinese, Indians and Arabs all to trade with us, just like we did in the boom of the 1990s. From every corner they came to trade with us. Um, and now, by moving in a different direction, by having indebted the nation, which this is the line, this is not what I'm saying, it's what, what I think they are going to say, by having indebted the nation to China because of the 1MDB bailout, actually what we're doing now is inviting a new colonization, a new calamity to end the glory days of the Malacca time, right? Um, by bringing Chinese investments here, by bringing the real Chinese threat. And it makes it possible, I think, with this kind of narrative building to argue to, to Malay Muslims in particular, who, as we hear, are more concerned about uh, communal issues than, than other people, um, it's possible then to argue to them in response to claims that if you vote for the opposition, you're actually voting for the DAP, that means you're actually voting for the Chinese, that means you're actually voting for communists, because I think that's how that argument goes. It makes it possible to turn around and say, actually, you're voting for the Chinese because you're voting for this um, you know, sale of the nation to Chinese interests, and you are bringing in new colonizers, not us. So you see how they flip the racial threat. This is where I think it's going to go. So you know, if you want to claim that local minorities are the threat, that local minorities are the colonizers, well, no, in fact, look behind you. They're the bigger threat. They're the bigger colonizers. And that's going to be the role of big China, I think, in this election. And I think that's where it's already going. For example, in the sorts of videos that you see circulating on WhatsApp at the moment. Um, and so that's why I think even though there's a real lack of talk of change, in fact, it's the lack of talk of change that is the potentially the masterstroke, or so they hope anyway, um, in terms of being able to communicate to people that, look, it's not going to be a sudden massive takeover, um, and you're not going to lose your political rights, and you're not going to lose your economic rights, and that's the way this thing is supposed to be.
that's the way this thing is supposed to work. So this time, there's another, um, I guess, uh, advantage as well to the fact that it's an external Chinese threat, not an external Bangladeshi threat. You don't need to rely on Bangladeshis when suddenly there's regional multipolarity to form the background to the, the new sort of threat <laughs> landscape. So I can't guarantee that Bangladeshis won't appear in this election campaign. They may well, because, you know, it's a, it's a good way to kind of unite people around an external threat, isn't it, by pointing to foreign workers. Um, but I think this time, you know, the, the fact that there's interest in the election that's being driven by the rise of China and the potential contest that's you know, emerging between China and the US in the region, using that drive of uh, interest, that surge of interest in the election to kind of situate this struggle uh, as, a, as a historic one is, I think, what Pakatan is attempting to do. Um, and I think the hope is, or the aim is, that it will push effectively Barisan into a, a narrative corner so that it is pushed further and further towards having to deal with bus to be able to fight back. And again, it's going to deal tactically. It won't be able to deal narratively with the public. It's going to be all about advantages and gerrymanders and seats and distributions and all the kinds of things that so bore people uh, and drive them to stay home uh, on election day. And I think the aim is that you know, one side is going to have the real soaring historical narrative and the other is going to be the boring side. So I think when when people talk about their fears that people aren't going to turn out to vote, I don't know that we can be sure which side's voters are not going to turn out to vote. I think there's a risk on both sides um, that the supporters may not turn out. And the effect is going to be to corral Barisan, or it may be to corral Barisan into a corner where they have to rely on Islamization as the only way to fight back, allowing then Pakatan to say again, see, we told you, we're the multiracial nation. We are the Barisan that represents the nation. We are the Barisan national not you. And I think that's how it's going to work and I'm going to be watching the development of this because I can sort of see, um, you know, the way it's supposed to go and it will actually, I mean, you know, if it works the way they want it to, and I'm not saying that it will, it may, it may well not, but if it works the way they want it to, the effect will be to say that we are the Rakyat, we've created the Rakyat, uh, and you guys are actually the scary Islamizers. Now, that's the kind of narrative, of course, that regional partners like to hear, that, you know, what a great success story Malaysia has contained its Islamizers. Um, you know, the kinds of regional partners that rely on Malaysia for trade, for, you know, sorting out their security problems in the region, etc. Um, and I think this is the kind of thing that is going to be circulating around WhatsApp and the Facebook policy talks and all that kind of thing. And I think it's about carving out new audiences um, that may already be bored with the last two elections and the way in which um, things have been discussed to actually take it to new audiences, i.e. Malay Muslims, civil servants, retired servicemen, that kind of thing. Um, so I'll just end it there. Thanks. Thanks very much, Amrita. Um, I think there's a lot uh, actually we could go on from everybody. Um, sorry about the sound problem. We also have to be um, a bit um, circumspect in terms of our discussion here because uh, there is actually the French launch of the wonderful book that's been edited by Sophie Lemire, who's just stepped in <laughs> um, soon. But hopefully we can have a bit of a quick discussion. Um, I, I was curious uh, about what you were presenting, Ben, I mean, obviously it's only a little bit of some of the data that you've been collecting. Um, about a lot of the electoral um, trends or ideas that are voting, uh, the voting public want to do, I, I mean, a lot of these polls tend to be really a snapshot in time and may not necessarily reflect what would happen, you know, even a week, two weeks down the track. And given how febrile or you know, uncertain the so-called 
uh, electorate is. Uh, do we, th uh, should we have a great deal of confidence that, you know, that will actually translate to people actually voting with those intentions? I mean, th those would be something I would be really curious to know. Um, given the uh, type of arguments for new narratives that, say, Fadia and uh, Amrita are sort of flagging here, and uh, which I, I presume in terms of narrative terms um, actually would be deeply informed by any new proposed public policies that we might get or not get uh, at the moment. You, would you like to start? Yeah. Um, thanks, Ken. I think um, when we look at the polling that we've done in the past, um, there's a couple of ways of looking at it. I think the bigger trends, uh, what we call maybe strategic initiatives on the part of the political players, I think that's all done. Meaning all the major initiatives that could set, that could differentiate one party, one coalition from the other, that's all done. I think we are at the nearly the final leg of the campaign. We're just waiting for parliament to be dissolved. And uh, basically, I think after Chinese New Year, everybody is going to start campaigning in earnest. And we're going to see the shape and nature of the narratives that they will bring forth. Uh, and pretty much that will be pretty much the last leg. And, and, and political parties like to think that during that two-week-long campaign period, they can actually shift the narrative. I'm, I don't have all the answers. My personal view, looking at the data that we've gathered over the past 10, 12 years, is that most of the uh, voters would have already made up their minds come dissolution day, the day that uh, parliament is dissolved. We will then be left with perhaps you know, a handful of voters, 5% to 8%, that have not yet made up their minds. And it's actually these people that will determine the outcome of this election. And the reason why I feel a bit dismissive about uh, seeing any large surprises uh, taking place in this election uh, within the scope of a campaign or narrative is that the pool of undecided voters is much smaller than the threshold that certain coalitions need to cross over in order to make a big impact in the election. And by this I mean Pakatan Harapan, let's not forget Gagasan Sejahtera, you know, that a strange animal made up of PAS and smaller parties, and then the BN. Um, we think that the pool of undecided voters is way much smaller than what either of these two opposition or non-Barisan national coalitions uh, need to gain in order to cross the line. Uh, and this is because uh, the, the, the strategic move that's taken place is this emergence of three corner fights. And I think I, I, I can't emphasize that more than... To me, at this point, the election has already been decided back in March 2014 when PAS accepted the offer by Jamil K to sit down and discuss about RUU 355, which is also the same week that the GST bill was passed. So for people who, you can go back and Google March 2014, the same week as, uh, that this, these two things happened, basically that determined the outcome that we're going to see in the next few months. Because I think if you look at other countries and experiences, any government, any ruling party that raises taxes is invariably going to invite some voter backlash. And I think uh, whoever that was planning this thing saw this far in advance that the only way that uh, Barisan can survive this challenge would be 
to ensure that uh, its uh, opponents are fragmented. And that is, I think, part of the cost in electoral politics. So if they fell for the bid, I think they're just going to have to live with it. Uh, so I think everything else that we're going to see unfold in this coming election is, is minor, is operational, you know, operational meaning elections that are going to happen at state level. I'm not saying this election is completely non-competitive. There will be pockets of competitiveness. For example, Sabah will be competitive because in Sabah, the three-way contest works differently there. Local parties, national parties, ruling coalition. So if they can arrive at some kind of accommodation with one another, then you might have a competitive election there. Johor, I think, is interesting because PAS is relatively weaker there. The nature of campaign and narrative being built up in Johor could actually change outcomes, potentially good. But time is, the clock is ticking. Kedah is another place where the Mahade brand name is very strong. Uh, can he make good on the brand name and translate that into votes? I think it remains to be seen. And then the state of Selangor, where uh, the opposition is an incumbent government and have actually spent a great deal of uh, public funds in order to put in place uh, a fairly well-regarded social safety net, you know, uh, public financial aid scheme, and, and various uh, you know, local government initiatives. So these are areas where I think the election is going to be uh, fairly interesting. But I think at a national level, uh, strategically, I think the initiative has been lost. Um, and I think what we are going to see at the national level would be more tactical measures that will be put in place by the players in order to uh, shape you know, short-term public opinion outcomes. Well, on the topic of public policies, since you raised it, the defining election was 2008. In 2008, the Barisa National got a shock of its life. And the reaction to this was remove Abdullah. And when Najib came into power, as I told you, there was a major reorientation debate, a narrative, if you like, a new narrative for the nation. One Malaysia. GTP, new economic model. Let me remind you, 2008 was also a defining moment because we had the global financial crisis. In the United States, the big debate was about a new model. When Najib went to meet Obama for the first time, soon after Obama was elected, he told Obama, we have a new economic model. And Obama said, tell me more. <laughs> the new model was about should the state intervene in the economy or not? The neoliberal model, the, the one about the market-driven model, was completely discredited after 2008. So the new debate was, to what extent should the state intervene in the economy? That was the debate. Najib, when he came to power, he said, look, we have affirmative action, which entails a lot of intervention in the state. No more affirmative action. He said that. Second thing he said, we have too many GLCs. We will remove the GLCs. We will privatize it. Soon after that, there was a backlash. Pakasa, what are you saying? The patron was Maate, remember? What are you saying? No more affirmative action. Within a year, he, if you look at the new economic model, if you look at Pamandu, they stopped talking about privatization. It is no longer a public policy debate. And as far as affirmative action is concerned, Najib backtracked and he said, now we will have 
market-friendly affirmative action. It's there in the 10th Malaysia Plan. A complete backtrack from the change that the people voted for in 2008. Now here's the crunch. In 2013, just before the election, a few academics came together and came up with a book, the New Economic Policy. It was about affirmative action. And we said, this is the policy that divides the nation. You have to debate it. You have to tell us what is your new model. The opposition did not take it up. The Barisan National, I can tell you, there was a response. I personally heard it. They came to me. They talked about it and then they said no. We're not going to debate it. Why? Because on both cases, the, the response was similar. We will lose the Malay vote. But it was a policy they had to debate because it was contributing to poor investments domestically. It was uh, contributing to the brain drain. People were migrating in large numbers because of this policy. There was a huge diaspora which was willing to come back, but they refused to change it. But they formed Talent Corporation and said, we will bring in Talent Corporation to go and bring this diaspora back and they will help us rebuild this country. And the diaspora told them, reform your public policies. Where is the political will to reform? Why is it not there? Because the pursuit of power. We need the Malay vote. So give us a public policy that suits poor Malays. But also give us a policy that will inspire confidence in investors to invest in the economy. The second issue, and a big debate, state intervention, GLCs. I remember in 2008, uh, Barisan National had been disciplined. The hope was Pakatan. And Pakatan came up with a new book, The Road to Freedom. Selangor State Government published it. And I said, when they asked me to launch the book, to discuss the book at the launching, I said, what is this? What is your new direction? Where is your concern for labor? There's not one chapter on labor. And what is your role on state intervention? And they said, no, please don't talk about that because if you talk about state intervention, nobody wants to intervene. Nobody wants to invest in the economy. Why? Because we have had enough of state intervention. We have had it since 1970. So I said, fine. So tell me, what is the new direction? And they had none. And when we did the study on small and medium-scale enterprises that constitute 99% of the economy, the small and medium-scale enterprises people told me in Selangor, when we interviewed them, I said, will you vote for Barisan National or for the opposition in the next election? They said, well, opposition is actually much better, you know. They are cleaner government, they are, they are far more efficient. So I said, so you will vote for them? They said, no. I said, why not? Because they're not giving us public policies to respond to the problems of the 2008 global financial crisis which is affecting us badly. At least Barisan National responds with public policies. Recently, we published a new book called Minister of Finance Incorporated. Garak Budaya. Now, you all may laugh, Minister of Finance Incorporated. It's not a hatchet job on the Prime Minister, who's the Finance Minister. There is a company called Minister of Finance Incorporated, which is the government's main holding company. Why did we write that book? We wrote that book because the government's, the government-linked companies in this country is huge. Huge. What are you going to do about it? Because privatization is not an option. It will contribute to greater inequalities. What is your role with the GLCs? Interestingly enough, though the book is even titled 
Minister of Finance Incorporated. There has been no debate about it, even among the opposition. In all 13 states, all 13 states have a lot of GLCs. How are the GLCs run? Can the GLC be a progressive form of economic development? Yes, they can. Can it be done through proper intervention? Yes, it can. How to do it? That we have to debate. Where is the debate? They, ra they rather not go there because they fear if they go there, this country has lived with state intervention since 1970. If we go there, we don't have a solution. What do we do? We're going to be shown up. That's my, my argument with both sides, huh? with both sides. So what do we do? They can't find an answer. Where is the debate? Our politicians should be debating these things. That will determine the direction of the economy. You heard about the inequalities in this country. You heard about undergraduate unemployment. You heard about education being in a rut. Where are these debates? We can talk about narratives, she said. Narratives, yes. The narratives is about, you know, Pakatan is seeing this electoral fraud and all that. Then Barisan will say, we will bring in people from outside to come and watch. Fine. But that is not my primary concern. My primary concern is we have to get our politicians to be accountable to us in terms of how they're going to govern. And let me end with saying this. What we are seeing now, the difference between 2008 and 2018 is a serious contestation now between state and society. State and society, when I talk about state, I'm not talking just Barisan, I'm saying also Pakatan. You just heard the points made, a sense of disillusionment. But there is one good thing that is happening, the rise of civil society. And in this contestation, you can see civil societies emerging. Let me name a few. On the issue of corruption, C4. On the election issues of electoral fraud, Bursay. The issue of gender, Jack. Good governance, G25. Islam, SIS. Environment, I can't remember the environment groups, but there's so many of them. Thank yeah. Very good. Civil society is standing up. And it is civil society that is articulating the difference that we want, the change that we want. Why isn't the politicians taking up these debates provided to us by civil society, well articulated, well prepared, policy documents given, and debating it. This is the point which I feel we should take to our politicians, to both coalitions, in the run-up to this election. Let me end here. Thanks very much, Terence. Um, I, I think that that precisely, I guess, puts the pedal to the metal here. We, we have this problem now of this uh, disconnect between the sort of reality of the electoral game and also the absence of suitable public policy development and discussion. But I, I, I was really curious to hear, obviously from both Fadia and Amrita, where we're trying to develop this idea of crafting the narrative. How is that sort of possible if you know we have this problem of uh, failure of imagination in policy? So there is a place in the emerging narrative that I'm watching uh, for public policy and it's, actually, it's a surprising place because it's actually to go back to the NEP because that was exactly what conditioned the emergence of the glory days of the dream team, Mahathir and Anwar. It seems that, I mean, ultimately, 
uh, I guess the crux of you know where where public policy seems to fit into this this emerging narrative at all is that we're going to go back to a time in which we didn't have all these problems. Um, now I don't know how that fits uh, with the kinds of things that Terence says we should be, or you know the nation should be demanding uh, in this uh, as a discussion in this election. But it's certainly not absent. Um, it just isn't. I don't think. It isn't necessarily going to be drilled down into uh, as a kind of a fine, uh, a fine series of debating points. It, uh, yeah, I mean, Terence is right. It depends on who leads, who intervenes, who steers the discussion. And of course, I can't see the future. I only work on the past. Um, so let's see how it goes. But I just wanted to just add that little bit there that there is actually there is a place for the NEP, and it's as part of a, a story of success um, that we need to. Um, or the argument will go that we need to resume. Uh, our, our path uh, towards that success. I think we have to allow the space for marginalized groups to speak up. Uh, you have to allow the youth to really voice out what they feel about this country. You have to allow women, for example, to, to speak for themselves. And I think the politicians, they will create their own narratives. Um, people who have um, interest in power, they will create their own narratives, but we as people have to collectively move together, we have to organize ourselves, and we have to elevate the discourse. Because what I find really troubling is sometimes we have thought leaders out there who are also perpetuating the same narrative that the state is using against people who dissent. Um, that has to stop. So the culture has to be shifted. You know, everyone has to start, start talking about how do we move collectively, how do we create um, a society that has the influence and power to really steer the direction of this country. That is where the important work has to be focused on. Yeah. Thanks, Fadia. Um, we, we have only had a limited time left, I, I think roughly about 15 minutes, so I am really ap apologise for the uh, lack of discussion time in public, but I am sure you can engage all uh, our speakers and anyone here, go for it. Um, so in the, in the meantime, however, uh, I think we could do a couple of questions, as long as uh, there really are questions and not making rhetorical statements. I really encourage you know anyone, if you have anything to quiz or perhaps take issue with uh, what you've just been hearing. Does anyone want to make a point? Nope. Well, <laughs> yes. Basically, is my question is, is there any uh, cross studies between countries which is import replacement versus FDI driven and how does that affect corporate feudalism that creates uh, a certain DNA of society. And what, do you, uh, what is your uh, feeling about this and what's your point of view? All right, thank you. We should take perhaps one more question or two more if there's anyone else and then we can have our panel raise it. Hi, I, I just came from the uh, World Urban Forum which is basically a festival of uh, show-offness. I was just wondering, you know, because I noticed that there's a lot of international companies and also international governments taking interest in trying to take over the infrastructure of our country. What could we do as citizens to actually take it back from them? I just want to ask, um, well, what is the role of the monarchs in coming general elections? 
I think, Fadia, you should answer the last question. We'll go from the back to the front. The role of the monarchs in this coming election. <laughs> I'm always wary of power and any institutions that are attached to the ruling class. Um, I'm very critical of these institutions and I think we should be critical of these institutions because um, an analysis of power relations is very important in order to understand how do we move from here, how do we read the political situation currently, and what can we do to really change how power works in this country? How do you correct the power imbalance? Yeah, I don't have the exact answer to that question, but I think we have to always be critical of power and how it works. Let me start with the question on different models. To tell you the truth, uh, after 2008, I still remember uh, attending talks by Pakatan, where they were seriously concerned about the German model, the social market economy. I spent some time actually traveling around Germany to study the social market economy. It's a model of development which entails the a social compact between state, capital, and labor. It was constructed in the post-World War II period, and it contributed to the rapid industrialization that we saw of Germany, today Europe's largest economy. A similar model of development was also implemented in Japan, a similar social compact. State, capital, and labor, reconstructing a country that has been torn to smithereens and rebuilding these economies to make them world-class economies, Germany and Japan. There's also the social democratic model of uh, Scandinavia, which they can look at. There are different models. The developmental model that we, that we saw in Southeast Asia, which drove industrialization in Korea, Japan, Taiwan, one could even argue Singapore. There are variations, but it was state-driven. In all these models that I talked about, the state does play a major role. That's why, as I said, as much as we may talk about uh, market-driven economies, and we do want to encourage the development of domestic firms. We do want to support our SMEs. They, after all, constitute 99% of the economy. We do want to nurture these domestic firms to be major players in the economy. The state has to play the role of helping to nurture them. The state has to play the role of giving them the right policies and incentives to bring them out. And we have seen this happening in other countries. The, that's that having been said, let me also say this, models change with time. A model which may work in the 1970s and 1980s may not be viable in the contemporary period. And that's where the debate starts again. You change. You change as the economy develops, the models also have to change. That's why I keep saying there has to be this constant debate about how the economy is developing and how do we deal with this economy. In the old days, the big problem was about poverty. Malaysia, for all of my criticisms may of the Barca National, the fact is it was about 65% in the 1960s. Now it's down to government figures, according to government figures, 0.6%. Whichever way you look at it, that is still a great success. The big debate today is not so much about poverty, but about inequalities, wealth and income disparities. And that too is an outcome of models of development. And that too is an issue now we have to redress. Where is the debate on that? Now, the second issue about uh, uh, taking back our country. I wouldn't be so dramatic, <laughs> dramatic, but I can understand your concern. 
Malaysia or Southeast Asia, the difference between Southeast Asia, industrialized Southeast Asia, and industrialized East Asia is, the, is that in industrialized Southeast Asia, our industrialization was driven by FDI. It was driven by multinational firms. But having said that, and this is an interesting irony for Malaysia, in the 1970s, when we looked at foreign equity ownership, when we looked at equity ownership patterns, foreign ownership of corporate equity was about 60%. With the, with the intervention of the government through the new economic model, uh, new economic policy, it fell from 60 odd percent to a mere 22% in 1990 at the end of the NEP. That was a 40 percentage point fall. That is phenomenal. And then we can see from 1990 onwards what happens. And we begin to see again now slowly the rise of foreign equity ownership. The figures given to us by the government, the last figures given to us by the government was in 2018. And at that time, the figure was 34%. It had gone up from 22% to 34%. And this was in 2008, 10 years ago. And this was before the rise of China. What is the equity ownership pattern like today in this country, especially foreign equity ownership? We have raised this now a number of times in our forums. Can the government please release the figures and show us what is the equity ownership figures for Bumiputras, non-Bumiputras, and foreigners? If it was 34% in 2008, what is the figure? What is the figure now? Now, China and the rise of China, the Belt Road Initiative, is a 2013 initiative, five years later. 2013 onwards, as you can see, China has just moved in in a big way into Asia. China has also moved into a big way into Malaysia. Some of Malaysia's leading projects, major infrastructure, infrastructure projects, including the industrial park in Pahang, and many of the ports involve China. Some of our energy projects involve China. But let me also tell you that not all projects are what I call state-state. We also have state-private. There are private firms dealing with Chinese companies for a variety of reasons, and we have some data on that. And we also have state-state-private. That means GLCs, state-owned enterprises from China, and private firms. There are variations. But having said that, even though there are these variations, I am also worried about China's enormous role in the Malaysian economy, and we have to be very careful about that. So these are issues we have to put on the table and put it back to the opposition, put it back to the Barisan National and ask them to please give us these figures. This is the best time to hold them accountable. Stop fudging the figures or hiding the figures from us so that we can know where, what's the state of the economy. Thanks very much, Terence. And th thank you all um, for coming. I'm sorry that we're so truncated here. As you know, Malaysia as a topic is terribly interesting to all of us. We, we have to actually end this thing. You can continue to engage and follow us. Obviously, this is the plug for newmandala.org and the uh, Twitter feed, at newmandala, and G14. Keep talking to our guests as well. So thanks for coming. Thanks for listening. And keep checking on newmandala.org and our Twitter feed at New Mandala.